Hey everyone, it is 6 p.m. Eastern. This is episode 12, Versus Media Live. I'm Stephen L. Miller. You don't have to know that one because you're not paying for this one, hopefully. Um, we're going to do a little bit of role play today. Don't worry, it's not on grooming. There's no grooming happening today. Um, this is the inaugural Versus Media Conference on Disinformation and the Erosion of Journalistic Standards in media, specifically with the Atlantic, CNN, and others. This is kind of a response to the Atlantic's Conference on Disinformation and the Erosion of Democracy, which has been a three-day event, fun. I don't know if they have nachos or anything, um, <clears throat> but it has featured several prominent voices who seem to be experts in the area of disinformation. We had, of course, CNN's Brian Stelter, who, uh, if you haven't seen the clip, when asked by a University of Chicago politics student, which is where this event was being held, uh, he was asked to kind of address several stories that were either considered misinformation or disinformation or were flat out wrong. That included the Steele dossier, CNN's coverage of... Michael Avenatti, who was a regular guest on Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter, uh, his gang rape accusations against Brett Kavanaugh. Obviously, we have Nicholas Sandman, which settled a lawsuit with CNN because of their disinformation towards him. We also have Juicy Smollett and how that story was treated at the beginning uh, without skepticism. And uh, the student noted that all of these things go one way. And uh, our dear Brian decided to invoke a dead Fox News cameraman as a response as he dodged the question. He did not address any of those things. Um, there's there's several others, obviously, Hunter Biden's laptop, um, which, again, as we know, as a story was is now true. We know it's true. It was not so much met with skepticism as social media companies just decided to block it outright. And so, of course, you had several media companies in tandem with tech companies who decided we're going to suppress a story at, at this request right before an election. Kind of a problem. Um, we also, of course, had former President Barack Obama at this Atlantic conference on disinformation. I actually liked Obama's definition, which I read it on my podcast. Um, it's a rare moment of self-reflection for him. And, of course, we have it was a video that caused the Benghazi ambassador compound to go up in flames. And we also, of course, if you have your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Neither of these things uh, were addressed at this disinformation conference. This was a kind of a sycophantic suck up to him with Jeffrey Goldberg, who is one of the biggest sycophant suck ups to him. And then uh, we obviously had playing the good conservatives. We had uh, Stephen Hayes, formerly of Fox News and the Weekly Standard, who's now editor-in-chief of the Dispatch, and, and obviously Joe Goldberg, who's obviously with the Dispatch as well. And they spoke on the nature of uh, – Stephen Hayes was on the panel with Brian Stelter, and then Jonah Goldberg spoke on the nature of the Hunter Biden story, saying he, he doesn't believe that it would have affected the outcome of the election and thinks that that was kind of a preposterous theory. So you had all of these things happening at the Atlantic Conference for Disinformation. And of course, there was a Q&A session where also a student asked Ann Applebaum why she was not interested in reporting on the Hunter Biden story when she was plenty interested on the Trump kids. Fair question. 
And she simply said, I, I didn't care about the story. I don't, I don't think Hunter Biden's business transactions has anything to do with who should be president. Well, we can debate that topic, except it appears that Joe Biden was in these business relationships. There's emails, there's texts, there's documents that show at, at, at least uh, the president had tacit knowledge of what Hunter Biden was doing, prancing all over Russia and Ukraine, P-tape. So that's not a suitable answer from a professional journalist. So I thought in kind, here's what we're going to do today. We'll go for about a little over an hour. Um, I want you guys to pretend that you are University of Chicago politics students. And you are currently watching a panel of Jeffrey Goldberg, Barack Obama, David Axelrod, Jonah Goldberg, Stephen Hayes, Brian Stelter. You can throw Adam Kinzinger in there, whatever. Um, and I'm going to take your questions for this panel. And we'll see if any of them have any answers uh, on concerns of disinformation happening. Uh, we see it happening on social media. We see it happening in elections. We see it happening all over the place. So this is a big deal. And as Jeffrey Goldberg said, our democracy is eroding. Right before our very eyes, it's eroding thanks to, I guess, plurk. I don't know. Um, so uh, hope you have your questions. I know I said I was going to do this on the podcast. So hopefully you've had your time to write your questions out for Mr. Stelter and company and Mr. Goldberg and Mr. Hayes and Mr. Obama. It's not every day you guys get to ask questions of a former president regarding dangerous disinformation, information that could cost you things like your doctor or having the IRS look into your taxes. So that's an honor to have Mr. Obama here with us as well. And of course, uh, David Axelrod, ho-hum, I mean, he's kind of a boring guy. But if you have questions for Dave, we'll take those as well. So we're going to just jump in. Um, we have Matt. Um, I don't think Matt is a University of Politics student, but uh, Matt, uh, come on up. Ask your question. Please limit your questions. There's only one person on the panel, so we can get through everyone. So choose wisely uh, who you'd like to hear from the most about disinformation. A couple of things uh, be, as I break character here. Make sure um, if you're not talking, your microphone is muted it's just so there's not a ton of background sound um, for the other callers and myself because mainly I lose track of what I'm talking about. Um, I'm selfish. What can I say? Um, and also just keep it short. Keep your comments for the panel short. And uh, we'll turn it over to the audience. Panel, are you guys ready? Okay. They're not answering. So, okay. I'm going to assume they're ready. Um, Matt, what's your question for our esteemed panel on uh, the first Versus Media Live conference on eroding standards in journalism and democracy, courtesy of The Atlantic? My first uh, question is for former President Obama. You are uh, sitting on a panel talking about misinformation. Um, was it misinformation when you met with former President Trump in the White House on Inauguration Day? And you said the two biggest things he needed to worry about was one, North Korea, and two, Mike Flynn. And you focused on Mike Flynn. You told him not to hire Mike Flynn because his, he was potentially a threat. And was it misinformation that you told Trump, which led him to eventually fire him? And you sent the FBI under kind of like a witch hunt to go after Mike Flynn based off of misinformation because he spoke to a Russian ambassador during a transition. Um, just like to get your thoughts. And have you had any reflection on that? 
Matt, thank you. I'm waiting for a response from the former president. No, nothing, nothing on any of this. I mean, he raises some good points here. Um, and, and I know that a lot of this is just, you know, tacitly based on reporting, which could also be misinformation, Mr. President. But um, there's some decent points here raised uh, about the concerns of, of Mike Flynn, who, um, look, I, I get, you know, this is general and stuff like that, but might have a screw loose. So we get all of that. But also, um, I mean, there are issues here of legitimate using FISA warrants uh, to collect data from Trump campaign members, which is kind of against the law. Do you have anything to say about this kind of disinformation? Like you're on the spot, you have a chance to answer this once and for all yourself without the filter of the New York Times, without the filter of the Atlantic. Um, anything? No. Wow. Okay. I, I guess maybe he wasn't expecting that, I guess. Um Matt, I'm sorry, you, you didn't get an answer to your question, much like this, the previous three days of the Atlantic panel. Um, that's a shame. Uh, maybe circle back. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll come around to something. Um, we'll take another audience member uh, for the panel. Maybe, maybe the other members of this panel on disinformation will have better answers for this kinds of stuff. They, they've never really answered questions on this stuff. Um, they, they've kind of talked to us through televisions and in, and in print. And then when we try to respond, they kind of just block you on Twitter. So I don't know. Um, it's good to have people here who are live who can answer these kinds of questions. Um, so, Chad, um, again, any panelist, pick one. You, you have Mr. Selters up there, obviously Mr. Goldberg, Mr. Obama, who um, hopefully he'll do better on the next one. Uh, of course, Jeffrey Goldberg, the, CEO, uh, the, chief, uh, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, um, who also, as we know, last August put out a story. Uh, about the former president who supposedly in Normandy called the soldier suckers and losers. You, you, I know, Mr. Goldberg, you said you were going to follow up reporting on that uh, when you were asked to essentially reveal your sources, because several other sources came on the record to say uh, the place and time where this could have happened didn't happen because he was around other people. Now, granted, it, it sounds like something Trump would say, but it also sounds like something someone would say that Trump said. Um, so I'm just hoping that maybe you can address that once and for all, because you did say on television, I believe it was MSNBC or CNN, it might've even been your show, Brian, that you were confident in your reporting from an anonymous source who you have yet to name, but you said that you would be releasing further reporting about this story and you never did. It just kind of went away. So that's another good one for, uh, Ms. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, if you have it. Uh, but once again, we also have Stephen Hayes down there. Don't forget about him. So Chad. Um, you're up. Uh, what's, what's your question and um, to whom would you like to address it to on the panel? Thanks, Stephen. I would like to, uh, again, go back to uh, exalted President Obama. And my question is a pivot from misinformation to no information. And I was curious if he could give us his firsthand perspective of the enabled genocide in Yemen that he took part in. Interesting. That one's kind of out of the blue. Are you, uh, Chad, Chad, are you addressing like misinformation directly or countered or just he's just never talked about it? Oh, this is a this is a pivot to no information, to be perfectly candid. Um, oh, OK. As this was com completely blacked out, um, although it's, uh, you know, Internet 
internet rumors and whatnot. So I just want to make sure the president had the option to address these and label them misinformation, if you will. This, this is actually a decent question because remember that Yemen was supposed to be the model for everything else in the Middle East as we saw a caliphate develop and Syria fall into civil war and obviously uh, American embassies in Libya and obviously we came, we saw he died and Yemen was supposed to be the whole model for this and it turns out that didn't go well. Um, Mr. Mr. President, anything on that one? I know, I know that they didn't do a lot of reporting. For some reason, like the New York Times, Washington Post, and other ones didn't really do reporting. Um, so there's not, as Chad knows, there's not really any disinformation to clear up because we haven't seen a lot of reporting about this or your role in this. Is, is this something you want to address or talk about? Okay. So that's two for from a former president. Um, that's pretty popular. I, I guess it's it's not every time you do have a, president here um so it's 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 not it's not surprising that people be directing their questions towards him especially when they had so many things of his presidency affect their lives so um i, I don't know i don't know what to tell you chad um he's not answering do, do you would you do you chad do you have another question maybe he can answer sure can uh can the uh president comment on um the uh, opportunity to have Taylor Lorenz write his next autobiography. No, he's, 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 <laughs> he's just shaking his head for those tuning in or not in the room with us. He's just shaking his head. Um, no, uh, no. Okay. The, the, the former president has gotten up and left the stage. Um, okay, so that, I guess, I think that that's a no Chad. Um, Maybe, maybe Lorenz and Stelter can team up on a bio. Brian, would you do that? Brian has also left the stage. Okay. So we're losing panelists already. Uh, Chad, thank you for your two questions. Um, maybe we can get Mr. Stelter and the former president back here. Um, but they, they actually went ahead and just left the room. Okay. That's good. Uh, Donna. What's uh, what is your question for our steam panel? I hope it's not for the former president because he he just left. Um, Brian, hello, Stephen. Brian, Brian's coming back. Brian, Brian is very slowly coming back <laughs> to the stage. So, Mr. Seltzer is back. Thank you, Brian. Hello, Stephen. Donna, um, what's what is your question for our steam panel on misinformation? Well, am I mistaken, or do I see Jen Jen uh, Sa- <laughs> yeah Jen Saki hiding around there behind the curtain? Because I have a question for her if she's around. Um, you you can pose your question for her. It, we I don't I don't I don't see her. I don't I don't see where she is. Is she is she sitting with the MSNBC group or what is she doing? Um, but you can certainly ask her. Well, you can pass it along for her. She she is wearing two hats. That's this is true. Um, well, I'm wondering about her comment yesterday about um, that it's okay to be around somebody with COVID for 15 minutes. And uh, she said that that was CDC guidelines. And I'd like to know when that came down and, uh, you know, when, when that information came out from the CDC, because I haven't heard it from anyone but her. So I was just wondering when she got that information from the CDC. Oh, right. and I also, also have a quick question for the writer of The Atlantic after, if, if possible. Uh, right. So 
uh, I, I guess the White House press secretary slash MSNBC host in reply to a comment that Nancy Pelosi has tested positive for COVID and she basically licked the side of the president's face like Jabba yes. the Hutt. Um, <laughs> and she was asked today to clarify if this was close contact according to the CDC. And she said no, because uh, it's only 15. It was it was it was not 15 minutes um, now, I'm going to interject here and state that I had also had not heard this standard from the CDC. I mean, I guess they could have went and just put it on the uh, the website now. Um, I, I wrote about why this is a problem, and I've also documented about myself. Um, and I'm only talking about her this way because I don't see her in the room. I would never be this rude to someone in the room like this, especially uh, especially with our esteemed panel. Um, that obviously, as I wrote this week for the Washington Examiner, that this poses an incredible conflict of interest that when she gets questions now in the White House press briefing room, knowing that they could be from future colleagues, that, you know, she's going to be hanging out with these people at award shows. And I don't know the nerd prom and, and all of this stuff. And when she dodges questions or spins it like this to them, is she doing this as an MSNBC host or she's actually speaking for the president. Where does one stop and where does one start? And you can tell that she's ducking and dodging all of these questions because she doesn't want to make things uncomfortable in her future job. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is unprecedented. We, we've seen uh, press secretaries go from the White House to the press podium and Tony Snow. And then we've seen them do the reverse and Dana Perino and others. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen a case where an active press secretary is negotiating a cable news hosting deal while she's acting as the mouthpiece for the administration, which is the mouthpiece for the country. Uh, I mean, that's our office. We pay for it. It's not hers to do whatever she wants with. Um, so there's a clear conflict of interest. It was addressed once last week by Ed O'Keefe and then once this week by uh, Kristen Welker. There's also a report in the Daily Mail that says MSNBC staffers are furious at this deal because it tarnishes their brand. And I just said, no, no, this is pretty much your brand. This is what it is. So no, your brand is fine. Don't worry about that. Um, but as I've always said about Jen Psaki, it's a game to her. It's she, she looks at these questions as a clever game. Like what can I come up with? And mm -hmm. she doesn't care that you buy them or not. Um, so she's obviously, making a lateral move as far as her credibility is concerned from the press podium to MSNBC. Um, I don't know how our president doesn't have COVID unless he had it already. And we just didn't know about it, which wouldn't shock me at all coming from this white house. Um, Donna, what's your other question for uh, our panelists on disinformation from the Atlantic CNN? And I guess, I guess the president is still back there hiding, but I guess you can shout one at him. <laughs> uh, no, probably to Jonah and uh, I forget her name, the writer for the Atlantic and Applebaum. And con thank mm -hmm. you, um, Applebaum, uh, concerning uh, Hunter's laptop and not being able to prove negatives and such. Um, just wondering if either of them have seen the polling that had the story been allowed to come out, not been censored by Twitter and Facebook, that it may very well have swayed them. Um, to not vote for Biden, not necessarily vote for Trump, but to not vote for Biden concerning um, all that's going on with inside that laptop, which seems like a lot. It seems quite weighty. So I'm just wondering if either of them have seen that polling and whether or not uh, that might change their minds about proving negatives. 
Uh, I, I'm also going to step in. It's not going to change our minds. Uh, just so in case our panel and our <laughs> listeners aren't clear, um, there was a pan, there was a polling conducted, I believe, by Rasmussen and also Media Research Center that said 16% of Joe Biden's voters, people who voted for Biden, may have changed their mind or stayed home or maybe voted for Trump. And the consensus seems to be that that's, that could have been enough to, to swing the election. Well, we don't really know that. It's also the Media Research Center, which is a right-leaning tank and, and media outlet. So you have to take that also into consideration. Um, I, I like the question that somebody asked today, which is, if it was completely preposterous that this story would not have swayed the election, or if the people in tech companies, such as Andy Stone at Facebook, who used to be a representative for Barbara Boxer, or Nick Picello at Twitter, who also used to be a comms person for Kamala Harris, why why would these people have not, um, why did they block the story if it would have been preposterous to suggest that it wouldn't have swayed voters? This idea that, um, hey, you know, the, the election would have gone the way it did. Even if even if the story was out there and everybody knew it was true and whatever, um, again, it's not proving a negative. And the example I believe Mr. Goldberg used, uh, Mr. Jonah Goldberg used, was I have a water bottle and it's, <laughs> this is keeping polar bears away. And um, I can't prove that it's not. Well, actually, yes, you can. You can throw the water bottle in the trash or burn it or destroy it. And I guess if polar bears come knocking down your door in Chicago, uh, then we'll know that it was the water bottle, I guess, except the chances of that happening are about a gazillion to none because polar bears do not reside at the University of Chicago and it's not their climate yet. Um, so this is a this is a rhetorical fallacy to basically justify an original dodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I, I mean, I'll speak up on behalf of the panel because they don't they don't seem to want to address many of these issues. They seem to just want to be quiet and, and talk about <laughs> polar bears, polar bears and lunch. Um, well, Stephen, since you're going to speak to them, have you seen the new spin that the censorship actually fueled uh, the story and therefore... Um, they tried to they tried to affect the election by censoring it. Well, yeah, but I mean that that as as I'm saying, that's kind of a point here. Is yeah. if they did if they did if they didn't think it was an important story, if they didn't think it would have affected the election, then then why then why block it? Why why block it and demand the New York Post remove the tweets? Um, I I think that that's a valid legitimate question. Um, Don, Donna, I'm gonna I'm gonna bump Andrew up so we can take Andrew's question Absolutely. for the panel, and I'll finish that. Thanks, Thanks, Donna. Um, I think that's a legitimate question. And the idea, I think the part of the problem with the way that that answer happened was Jonah's reframing it to his own terms. To the, the, the student who asked this question said this poll, which you can argue about the science of the polling. I'm fine with that. Go debate it. Go, it could have been a skewed poll. Um, I, I didn't see the specific question that was asked. That always has an effect on polling. So that's fine. We can argue about the science of the poll. But the student said very specifically that it would it possibly would have made Biden voters reconsider their vote. Jonah switched it to Trump would have won the election. And this is not what the student said. You, I guess you can assume that. But again, if you're a writer or if you're a thinker, you have to listen to what people are saying. I also note the attitude of this panel. 
uh, and the way they dismiss questions from young people. And as I've noted over and over again, I mean, to me, this, this panel this week was CPAC with inside voice. Um, they, they were talking about the same kind of nuttery stuff that happens at CPAC. They were just doing it for the other team now, an inside voice. The problem with this is dismissing the students who asked very smart questions of Jonah Goldberg and also Brian Stelter is um, the idea that they're just misguided and, you know, you're wrong. This isn't who we are and, and this is whatever. So you're at a disinformation conference. You're being asked to address misinformation that you have endorsed. So Jonah's tweet at, I believe, Jim Treacher at Substack and formerly Daily Caller was, wait, you believe the laptop story on its face? Well, I don't think anybody believes anything they read in the news anymore on its face. At least you shouldn't. So if the New York story, if the New York Post puts out a story that says we have Hunter Biden's laptop and there's all this shady shit on it and whatever, two weeks before the election, it's not our media's job to stop people from reading it. And it's not our media's job to block it from social media, citing what they think might be Russia in misinformation. They, they did this on a whim. They had no proof that it was. They just, hey, we think that this looks shady and you need to stop this because this is, this is Russia. Oh, shit, okay, and then I hit the block button. In these cases, if you're skeptical of the New York Post story, you use your platform to write why you're skeptical of it. You use your platform at the Dispatch or the Atlantic or wherever. People were not given that choice. The story was blocked. You could not, you could not even put up screenshots or link it. Uh, Jake Sherman, a reporter for Punchbowl News, formerly a political, I believe political, had his account locked. An, an actual journalist had his account locked for trying to share the story. And Jeffrey Goldberg and all of his cohorts at The Atlantic and places like CNN, who at least what I believe, contacted Twitter and Facebook behind the scenes and said, you need to stop this. They all sat on their hands while fellow reporters were banned from Twitter and the story was blocked. They have decided to write this off as, hey, you know, shit happens. You know, the New York Times confirmed it. And, oh, I guess, and as we saw, Jonah Goldberg's reaction was to take it out on the people on Twitter who pointed out that he wrote this off. And he was also very dismissive of this student. And what I talked about on my podcast today was very simple. This is how you lost a generation of young people. When you don't talk to them, instead, you're going to be talking about, you know, you're, you're going to be sitting at the Atlantic and talking to a room or a panel of people you all agree with, and then sneering down your nose at people who have questions for you. Um, you're going to lose a lot of people. And a lot of people who might have read you or could have read you. So you could have been out talking to college campuses. Instead, you weren't. Instead, the people talking to college campuses were Milo Yiannopoulos and Charlie Kirk and a few others. And you seem real displeased at the direction the right has taken because of that hole that you left. Well, this is why I don't really care about your complaints about the, the, uh, where the right is in the media. Um, this is how we got here. So... Um, getting back into it, Andrew, if you had a question for our panel on disinformation, what would your question be for that panel? Of course. Uh, my question is for Mr. Stelter and for uh, Ms. Applebaum and Mr. Goldberg and, and even Mr. Obama, if he's back there. 
I understand that you all are very worried about right-wing disinformation. It is incredibly dangerous because it can lead to mis um to bad things happening. If they, um, I think we can all agree that January sixth was a bad thing because of disinformation. Because there was another big bit of right-wing disinformation a few decades ago that I know all of you deeply are upset about because you all ran against it for so long. Uh, the Iraq War was based on the idea, pushed by many in right-wing media, that there were WMDs and other um, dangerous, um, immediately dangerous things to Americans in, the, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. One of, the, one of your fellow panelists wrote a book about why the, the WMDs are there and why it is important for the safety of Americans to go overthrow um, Saddam Hussein. And that caused a whole mess of problems in the Middle East that we are still dealing with today, including allowing um, Russia and Vladimir Putin to build up their military experience in Syria. What do you all say to Stephen Hayes about his book and how does he regret any disinformation he upspread, and all those other issues that came about from that. Uh, the, the good thing about this question is you also had Jeffrey Goldberg, who uh, pushed at the Atlantic, of all places, uh, the idea that there were links between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, um, which were never really found other than, you know, contacts, but, um, there, you know, there was, there was some, you know, terror activity linked with Hussein, but, uh, not, not Al Qaeda in particular. And Jeffrey Goldberg was one of the, uh, premier people who, who pushed this. So, um, I, I kind of sympathize, uh, here with Andrew's question, um, with a lot of this stuff. And I guess we look back and I guess we can call it the fog of war that got, uh, a few thousand American troops killed and several in the Middle East. And as Andrew said, it it kind of also created, speaking of vacuum, uh, a vacuum in that part of the world, uh, which empowered Bashar al-Assad, as, uh, amongst others, as well as Vladimir Putin, as well as Iran, who essentially conducted a, conducted a proxy war against uh, American troops in Iraq. Here's a, uh, here's a fun screenshot. It's called The Great Terror. Uh, a reporter-at-large March 25th, 2002 issue. The Great Terror. In northern Iraq, there is new evidence of Saddam Hussein's genocidal war on the Kurds and of his possible ties to al-Qaeda by Jeffrey Goldberg, March 17th, 2002. Now, we do know that Saddam Hussein did gas Kurds in northern Iraq, um, which was very, very bad, of course. And how this, I think what Andrew's getting to, and I'll let him kind of, wrap this up for our panel is we're kind of seeing the same narrative unfold with Russia and Ukraine. And I had people ask me, I had someone asked me yesterday on a podcast uh, why I'm, I don't really tweet or I don't really write or talk too much about Russia and Ukraine. Well, I did. Uh, I had a piece where I said, this is really the first social media war as far as nation states and whatever and how it's being used both by Ukraine and Russia and how Zelensky has been pretty talented at using it. Um, but you're also seeing basically on the left, the corporate media left, the MSNBC left. So the Nicole Wallace's, the Bill Crystals, all those Bush people are basically saying we need a no fly zone now. And you even had an MSNBC host 
advocate for direct military confrontation in Ukraine. And if you were awake and alive in, in, during the Iraq war, you're seeing shades of this. Do, do I think that that's going to happen? I don't think so. Um, but it is interesting to see them advocate that. Um, and then again, on the far right, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's pro-Putin media coverage, but there's certainly some justifications for the invasion happening and saying, well, this is because Bill Clinton expanded NATO, <clears throat> excuse me, which Bill Clinton just wrote about at the Atlantic, another person who's an expert on disinformation. Um, and so I'm, I'm again, skeptical of everything that I see and read with this. And I don't, uh, I, I'm kind of just watching how this all unfolds as far as our media. Um, but it is a good question that you have the same purveyors of people who, for decades kind of pushed things that turned out to not be true, whether they did it on purpose or not is up for debate. We can certainly talk about the evidence for that. Um, who, who are now basically lecturing uh, an entire consumer audience of media about uh, the dangers of misinformation. What they mean by that is they don't like Fox News anymore. And that's basically what this is. Andrew, do you have another question or do you just want to wrap up? I was also just trying to get them to start biting each other's heads off because that's always fun. <laughs> uh, but that, I was also, that, ha- that happens the at the side, soiree uh, later. Uh, uh, but speaking on the other side, uh, Jonah, I've read, gone back and read several articles from late 2004 that were very funny in the National Review. Uh, how does it feel to be sitting next to someone who is more or less keep it, um, keeping Dan Rather's lights on? Um, that's good. Andrew's, of course, referencing Dan Rather. This is an important point that I wish one of the students would have brought up. And and God bless them, they're young. They're only like 20 years old. Uh, Andrew, those are good questions from our panel. I don't think that they're going to answer, but I appreciate them. Um, this is a, this was a good, this, this should have been a good question for, uh, Brian Stelter from one of these students. And I wish this was included in when that student just kind of ran down, um, just ran down basically all of the uh, stories of CNN had gotten wrong. And the majority of why they got these stories wrong was because of an ideological bent and a point of view. And the student even notes that he says, all of these stories go and run away. And Brian Stelter goes, what about the dead Fox News cameraman? Um, Jonah Goldberg is no fan of Dan Rather. This is kind of a famous thing going back. And he wrote several pieces on it about Dan Rather, who rather famously trafficked in disinformation to sway an election. Uh, he paid for it with his job, mostly. and But in the last few years, those of us on the right who pay attention to media have seen a kind of rehabilitation of Dan Rather. Um, Brian Stelter, in particular, has called him the legendary Dan Rather and has had him on his show several times. Uh, for those of you unaware of the irony of this, Brian Stelter's CNN show is titled Reliable Sources. <laughs> and Brian has never really directly addressed, I don't think he's going to do so today, um, has never directly addressed why he chooses to have Dan Rather on his show titled Reliable Sources and, and while simultaneously appearing on a stage talking about trafficking and disinformation. Dan Rather is kind is kind of the uh, the OG of this media genre, and this is why a lot of people, myself included, but I would guess a lot of people who are in this audience and who, who follow writing on Twitter, 
uh, would suffice to say that this is a huge credibility gap. And this is why we don't believe you. We don't believe that you actually believe the things that you're saying. And because if you really cared about not trafficking in disinformation, if you really cared about that, you wouldn't be booking Dan Rather on your show. You just wouldn't do it. You would just say, I'm going to get so much shit for this. I can't do this. Another interesting thing, we, we both, we all know that Jonah Goldberg and Dan, and uh, I'm sorry, Stephen Hayes exited Fox News. And then they went and they gave quotes to the media about it. And they said they just, they could not, they couldn't abide anymore the election denialism or the, the questioning of the election coming from Tucker Carlson in particular. And this was also, I believe, Chris Wallace's exit excuse. And that's fine. If you don't like where you're contributing for media, if you don't like the writers there, by all means, leave. You're free to do so. And I don't think Steve and Jonah need the money. Um, but the reason they gave is because they could not no longer abide the behavior of their colleagues. Okay, good. That's, that's fine. Fair enough. Uh, about three weeks after that story uh, had broke where they wrote this, and they also said in, the, in the, their dispatch signing off letter that we believe cable news is large in part a problem. We know that Stephen Hayes signed a contract, contributor contract with NBC, which is MSNBC as well, where he was now, he will now be sharing office space with Joy Reid, who just two days ago called the Republican Party the party of rape. Yeah, I guess that's okay. The bigger point I'm going to get to, uh, and that story reads editorial opinion, as grotesque as it is, that's not really trafficking and disinformation as it's defined. I'm interested about how he feels going to the network of Morning Joe, who gave Donald Trump 41 interviews during the 2016 uh, GOP primaries. 31 were in person, 10 were call-in. This had never happened before in a presidential election. We also know they gave Donald Trump his own hour-long special um, to rival the GOP debate and basically catered to his every single need. The other thing is Stephen Hayes has now gone to the network of Brian Williams. This is getting overlooked. Brian Williams, who trafficked in stolen valor, uh, spread rampant disinformation from the NBC News desk, who again also paid for it. He was, he was fired, suspended, but then was given his show back on MSNBC and left uh, earlier this year, much to the applause of his colleagues. Um, this is, again, why we all kind of just roll our eyes at these people when you are worried about disinformation on the right or from Fox News or whatever. Um, you can think whatever you want of Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is an opinion host. He has good opinions. He has bad opinions, but he is an editorialist. That's what he does. Um, this idea that he sh should be mentioned along the same breath as somebody like Dan Rather or Brian Williams is ludicrous. So I'm wondering, and I'm going to keep asking them this, and I don't think that they're ever going to reply, why the standards of disinformation apply to one section, but they don't apply to this place. Um, I don't know why you would sit on a panel. The other thing is, um, I don't know why you believe you're the righteous conservative if you can accept the invitation to appear at a conference on disinformation alongside the former President Barack Obama. Um, you, you kind of lose your credibility card with me on that one in particular, but these are, these are good points about, um, Dan rather, I wish, uh, the youngins would do some research and, and address this. Although I don't think we're going to see these people back out in public in a while. Jim, what is your question for, uh, the Atlantic panel on disinformation?
Jim is being as quiet as our panelists are. We'll give him a minute. We'll clear some time. Can you hear me? Hello? Yep, you're there. Go ahead. All Sorry right. about that. Uh, yes, my question's for President Barack no, Obama. He's, popular to, he's, he's very popular at this conference on misinformation. So back in July of 2009, a black Harvard professor was trying to break into his own house and was arrested by a white police officer. And you commented that the police had acted stupidly. Uh, later, you had to backtrack that and hold a beer summit to smooth things over. What advice do you have to our current leaders about commenting on breaking news before all the facts are in? This is a good question from Jim. This also plays into uh, Jesse Smollett, who we saw every Democratic candidate for president under the sun, including our current vice president, call it a modern day lynching before the facts were known on this case. These statements were also obviously spread far and wide. The interesting case about what Jim is bringing up, uh, for those of you who don't remember, who aren't in the know, yet uh, Professor Robert Gates uh, was trying to enter his own home. He didn't have his keys. Somebody called the police, the, the local, I think it was the Columbia police, who uh, went to the scene they asked him for his identification. He didn't have it. I, I don't believe he was arrested. I do believe they detained him until they could confirm his identity. Uh, the press asked Obama about this incident, like Jim said, and the president said this was a huge press conference, too. This was not like just off the cuff walking across the lawn. This was during a, a huge conference. And he said he didn't have all the facts of the case, but he believes, uh, based on what he's read, the police acted stupidly. Um. For those of you who have been around a while, this was really one of the very first culture incidences that kicked off what later we saw become uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the police protest, the, the Trayvon Martin protest shootings, the Michael Brown and Ferguson. That was another incident, CNN trafficked in misinformation. Hands up, don't shoot. Um, but the, the Henry uh, Gates incident was really the very first one where we had a United States president commenting on a local law enforcement matter. Uh, I, I do know that he is friendly with the professor, so that might have had something to do with it. What we also learned later is that the uh, officer actually teaches race relations uh, at that police department, the old classes. Uh, he had uh, black female colleagues back him up and say, this, this guy's not a racist. I don't know what you're doing. So as Jim noted, the solution to that was to have a beer summit where we had the officer we had the professor, and then we had Joe Biden, and we had Barack Obama. And there's some interesting takeaways from that, and I'm, I want to quote Charles Krauthammer on this one. Um, well, not quote, but I, I remember specifically what Krauthammer said about this because he nailed it. He completely nailed Barack Obama better than anyone had ever done before, and that's why I remember it so much. It's seared into my mind. But there was a great photograph from this beer summit where uh, they're walking out to the garden where they're going to have peanuts and beer and they're going to just talk and work things out like adults or however it be and show the country a teachable moment. And they're walking down like a flight of stairs, like just a, some brief White House steps. There's like four or five of them. And you have Obama, I think, in the front. Biden's in the far back. And helping uh, Gates down the stairs is the officer. It wasn't Obama. It wasn't Biden. It was the officer. And that was something that was very interesting to me 
um, beyond what was, I'm actually going to mend this with my fellow human being as opposed to here's our photo op. Crowdhammer's comment on this, and this is a very good example that Jim brought up about misinformation from this president. Crowdhammer noticed that Obama would just float above everything, right? So his mouth creates a new cycle. The police acted stupidly. That creates the new cycle. Nothing else. He caused this, right? So that caused kind of a firestorm in media being like, well, we didn't have all the facts and he didn't. Why is he doing this? Why is he even being asked about this or anything? His mouth gets him in trouble. He then says, well, the country, we need to learn the, we need to learn, learn a lesson as a country. Well, no, we don't. You need to learn the lesson, you idiot. Like the country isn't the one that caused this mess. It's you who caused this mess. So Crowdhammer noticed this with Obama is he kind of creates a mess that he steps back and says, here's what we all, we all need to do some soul searching. Wait, no, what do you do? Wait, what do I need to do soul searching? You're the one who did this. And he, then he kind of floats above it and then says, see, see what we're doing. We're mending. And Crowdhammer just, he totally got what that president was about. And I wish he was still here today to comment on this stuff about disinformation. Jim, do you have any other questions for anyone else on the panel or any thoughts on disinformation and uh, the panel of CNN, the Atlantic and the dispatch and others? Just wanted to clear up a couple facts. I did catch COVID this week, but I was not in close contact with Nancy Pelosi. Ooh, that's, that's good. She didn't, she did, she didn't like lick your face with the, with the job of the tongue or anything. No. Okay. She could have flown in an open window at night, though. Did you, did you close your windows? Sometimes she, uh, sometimes she leaves. pretty cold in Minnesota. Some, sometimes, she, sometimes she leaves the premises to feed in the middle of the night. So <laughs> as, long as, you're, as long as you're sure you had windows closed. Um, how are you doing with COVID, by chance? Oh, pretty good. Uh, yeah, for any, me, any... I had one night of chilly sweats. Yeah, it's hard to sleep, but that was about it. And, you know, kind of a dry cough now. Are you, uh, if you don't mind, are you vaccinated? Yep. Oh. I had the J&J uh, two shots. Wow. And you still caught it and you still got symptoms. Yep. Yeah. And, so I, uh, I, I caught it in December of 20, whatever, last year, whatever. Um, it kind of burned right through my hockey locker room and it, it got me and I had the same thing. This is before vaccinations were out. Um, and I had the same thing. I was out for about a day and then I kind of mostly felt fine. And then I lost my taste and smell for about two weeks. Um, and then I went and I got, I'm vaccinated and boosted as well. Um, so I, I figured at this point, why not? Like I'm, I'm basically a Kryptonian now. Um, <laughs> but that's, but that's interesting. Um, where, where are you? Are you, where are you in the country? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, Rochester, Minnesota. So it's Midwest because we have a new variant that's looking like it's burning from New York to D.C. Not fast enough. Um, so I was just kind of curious about that. So, but that's good. You're you're feeling okay. You have you you haven't lost taste or smell, have you? I have. Not. Uh, that that might come. Mine mine was kind of delayed. Mine happened about three to four days after. Um, I, my symptoms have pretty much passed. And then I'm like, hey, I'm great. And then I realized I couldn't smell anything. Okay. And then about four days later, I got like a whiff of coffee because I still kept dry. I still kept my, my diet routine, whatever. 
and I got like a faint whiff of coffee and it was like, um, it, it was like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption with his arms up. So, uh, that's good. That's good that you're feeling okay. And it's probably even better. You didn't catch that from Pelosi. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Brian. Welcome to the Versus Media, the first annual Versus Media conference on disinformation and the erosion of journalistic standards amongst the Atlantic and other people in media. What would be your question for that Atlantic panel on uh, the dangers of disinformation? Brian, put the drink down. Is Brian gone? Okay, we lost Brian. Brian's not interested in this panel. T, what would, what would be your question for any member of this panel at the Atlantic on disinformation? That can, that can include Brian Stelter, Barack Obama, Jeffrey Goldberg, David Axelrod, Ann Applebaum, Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes. What's your, what's your concern and question as it relates to the dangers of disinformation with our media? So I have a two-part question, uh, and also, Brian, this one's for Brian Seller. This must be such an honor to be at my campus, a card-carrying alumni member of the Orient Institute of the University of Chicago. You going to Townsend State, 80% selection approved. Must be really exciting to be here. So enjoy your time here. My question is two-part. One, what are the requirements for someone like Michael Avenatti to come on your station what do you do, a uh, HR background? Because a basic Google search before you gave him 100 appearances would have shown this man was in trouble both financially and legally, yet he went on. So what's the background on this? And also, Brian, you can probably ask for this from multiple networks. When you have people like James Clapper, Brennan, Comey, other people who have lied under oath, who have repeatedly pushed, pushed the limit of mass surveillance, hacking congressional computers, hacking American and violating. Why are we in a democracy issue when you're having these type of people from the CIA, the FBI and the NSA with their careerism on the line? Why are these people experts when they've clearly lied to the American people? Thank you. Uh, these are both good questions. Uh, this is a concern, obviously, that uh, Glenn Greenwald has um, issued. And as I said, I, you know, just to reiterate, me and Glenn agree about nothing on almost nothing on politics and almost everything on corporate media. Um, it's 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 kind of funny. Um, but this is exactly part of the problem when, you know, we had 50, 50 intelligence officials right off the Hunter Biden laptop as a Russian disinformation campaign. What were they basing this on? I think that that's important. Like, what, who was giving them this information that said that this is a disinformation campaign? Or did they just say, hey, this is my opinion and we just were going to run with it without any evidence? Um, Greenwald often talks about kind of the the intelligence, the intelligence, the intelligence apparatusification of corporate media. So you have MSNBC who has, you know, Nicole Wallace, who was a Bush uh, administration person. And then you obviously have Brennan on there and then you have Clapper and you have um, people who are all these former intelligence officials who all will then back up what the FBI is saying or what the CIA is saying or what they're leaking or whatever. Um, and 
this creates obviously a completely one-sided issue where we're getting one side from the intelligence officials who thinks who's their job. And some of them still have security clearances um, who say that, you know, they, Hey, this is disinformation. We got to, we got to stop this, whatever. And then it comes out two years later. Oh no, it wasn't. Again, I'm kind of curious where they got their information from and who's, who's telling them that. Um, the thing with Clapper and Congress, obviously this was about prism where it was revealed that Brennan was spying on Diane Feinstein amongst others, computers and reading their metadata. And they lied to Congress. The, the famous answer from James Clapper was, are, are you currently spying on like members of Congress or the American people? And he said, no. And I forgot who it was. And maybe T can remind me who kind of looked at him and went, no. And he goes, not knowingly. <laughs> And right there, I'm like, this guy needs to go to prison. And uh, T is right with these questions. You bring on people who are professional liars. They're, they're, they're put in their positions because of how good they are at, you know, kayfabe campaigns and misinformation campaigns and, and all the things that, you know, we do as a country that, you know, we say are bad if you do them in other countries. Um, so, again, th this is an institutional problem. And this is what this is a good point we kind of stumbled into that T brought us into is they want you to believe that this is a problem with social media and Pepe memes and bot accounts on Twitter. No, the problem with this information is you guys are protecting one side of it and it goes all the way up to the institutions of academia. It goes into media, it goes into our white house, it goes everywhere. And again, if these guys actually cared about disinformation, and, and I'll even throw Gold, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes, if you guys actually cared about disinformation, if you were still the righteous conservative, you turn down this conference. You just go, no, I'm not going to appear alongside Barack Obama. Uh, I'm just not going to do it, who trafficked in so much information that PolitiFact, which is basically a left-wing PR operation, had to give him lie of the year, and he got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post. You turn that invitation down. It is possible to turn down invitations to these things. I've done it. Not very often, but I have. Um, it is possible. So then I have to ask, so why did uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes, con conservatives, supposed conservatives from the dispatch, accept this invite other than to maybe, you know, smooch up with uh, institutional elites that maybe they've just had the cold wing for for too long in their careers. Maybe that fire is awfully warm right now. Uh, T, I'll let you finish. Have you any other questions or thoughts for anyone else on the panel? Also, oh, I'm sorry. You also brought up Michael Avenatti. Yeah, Michael Avenatti. Yeah. I, I, clearly, the the follow up here is this man. This man had a great influence. He became a pop star, a celebrity. He put his fingers in various. I was, that's not a good thing with the porn star. He put his, he had his hand in various situations that were influential from Brett Kavanaugh all the way down to Donald Trump. How did you not do a basic Google search on this man before you let him have this many appearances? I would submit you're asking the wrong question. Not how, why? You said, how, how do you not? Well, why don't you? Like, it's not a question of how. They, yeah, it's okay. So why didn't you? And this comes down to a huge problem we saw during the Trump administration years, which was confirmation bias. Um, they, they wanted a story to believe it's, it's true so badly that we're going to run with it. And hey, you know, I trust the Atlantic. So those are my friends over there. And those guys would never be wrong. And they're never going to sway. So we're just going to run with this now. And because the, the news cycle moves so kind of fast, 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 fast like that, 
we're just going to throw it out there. We're going to saturate the zone. And then hopefully by the time it comes out, it's just we're going to move on. And, and oh, shit, we got that one wrong. Um, the thing with Michael Avenatti, as you said, th- this guy had kind of a history to where some of us, and I would say argue a lot of us who are not pro-Trump people, as this as the Mueller investigation is happening, and then obviously you obviously had the Kavanaugh hearings, who just kind of went, yeah, there's something going on here. And if you recall, uh, I think he made a total, I believe it's the Free Beacon had this, They made he made a total of 131 cable appearances over the span of about four and a half months. He was everywhere. You had you have a great uh, montage where you have the view is like sexually fantasizing about him on stage. And if we want to talk about shows that traffic in misinformation, uh, that are a danger to the erosion of democracy, that's one that needs to go off the air if that's really your aim. Um, and so we saw what was happening with Michael Avenatti, and there's just like this guy's clearly like there's clearly something going on here. Like this is not just the angle and you had everyone from Lawrence O'Donnell to Bill Maher to Brian Stelter who floated him as a possible presidential candidate who Brian Stelter's justification for that was I'm taking you seriously as a candidate because of all the media attention you're getting. Well, no, Brian, you are the media. You have a show and you're having him on your show. So you're taking him serious as a candidate because of the attention you're giving him. And so if you the, the, the giveaway in all of this, and I'll let T kind of wrap up and I'll let him do one more follow-up, is um, the, the natural follow-up in all of this is how much they just completely ignored when he went to federal prison. And they, it, they wasn't on CNN. They might have broken in or whatever. But this was a guy who dominated this network. He was basically CNN's missing plane for three and a half months. See, that's all that he was talk- they were talking about with uh, Stormy Daniels and this. And the most amazing thing of the Trump era is just how many of these kinds of characters that were produced and how many of them are just trying to still cling on to him. Um, for all the dangers of democracy that people like Brian Stelter talk about or um, the, the, the Lincoln Project dudes, um, actual groomers, um, for all the talk of how what a danger Trump is to the country, he made them the most amount of money and notoriety. I mean, with this is one thing Trump is right on is without without me, you don't have ratings and anything else. Up. They, they would love to have me back. And this is obviously confirmed about how they just keep fucking talking about him. I bet I bet right now if I go to CNN's homepage, I don't do this at all for obvious reasons. I'm going to find at least two, two to three stories on Donald Trump. Oh, right here. Donald Trump Jr. texted Meadows. Um, that's one right there, front and center. Um, so that's a big one, I guess. I guess we'll look into that one. Um, let's see here. Eh, Brown Jackson's up there, but there's a big one. So we still have Trump all over their front page or his kids. Um, this is another good, this is, this is another good thing. We have the lead story on the front page of CNN is about Donald Trump Jr., the president's son. And this is a news outlet that has just said, we're not interested in Hunter Biden. T, I'll give you a minute to wrap it up. No, that's okay. Thank you so much for the time. I'm okay. Jeffrey, it's your turn. Um, what What would be a good question you would have on the dangers of disinformation for this panel on the Atlantic on the erosion of democracy? Can you hear me? Hello? Uh, hello? 
Sorry, Jeff. Uh, I do. I just I muted my mic and then I got a pop up and I okay. couldn't unmic. So, yep, we got you. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you very much for uh, holding this panel, Mister uh, Mister Miller. I am, but I am, but and, a uh, merely my microphone question is holder. For... I am simply just holding the microphone. Yes. Sir. Yes. Uh, my question is for uh, Stephen Hayes. Um, Mr. Hayes, during your uh, disastrous run as editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, you employed such people as notorious adulterer and uh, all-around Donald Trump cosplayer Charlie Sykes, who, during his employment at your magazine, posted a uh, radio show in which he regularly platformed such beacons of truth and love as Sheriff Clark, along with countless others. In light of what has come since then, how much of a role do you believe your failed publication played in fomenting the atmosphere that we see today? Uh, I too would like a question to, I too would like to get an answer to this someday. I don't think we're going to get one today, Jeff. Um, this is a, this is kind of a very, very good point um, that a lot of these people who directly steered the bus to the direction that we're in are now worried about the trafficking and spread of misinformation amongst other things. We obviously have Steve Schmidt of the Lincoln project who plucked Sarah Palin and then he got kicked off the, the tea party bus. We have Bill Crystal who uh, discovered Josh Mandel plucked Josh Mandel out of obscurity. And now we see how that's going. Um, who also pumped up kind of the, they roused the rabble of tea party and Jeffrey, uh, is he's kind of getting into niche Wisconsin politics with Charlie Sykes, who has basically spent the majority of his career as a low rent Rush Limbaugh. Um, there's an interesting book Charlie has written in the nineties, basically about taking our schools back um, for anyone who is not blocked by him on social media. Unlike myself, um, that's a fun one to go dig into the archives and go read some of the things he was writing about in the nineties. Um, and now you have all of these people again, who appear on MSNBC and they appear on CNN and they've signed lavish contributor deals and have essentially said, nope, I'm washed my hands of this. I didn't have anything to do, do with this. I'm one of the good ones. And uh, as Jeffrey kind of alluded to, the reason why a lot of these guys don't just come outright and say we're Democrats now is because they will immediately lose their usefulness to uh, the people in media they're trying to suck up to. If, if Charlie Sykes, for instance, comes out and says, I'm a Democrat now, what, you know, that's it. If he out, flat out says it, whatever, and starts advocating Democrat policies, well, he loses his usefulness as the good Republican who can just tell us how all of the rest of the people on the right are crazy. The question that's worth asking is, why would they knowingly go along with this? Because they do. They absolutely know that, you know, when when they they appear on Joy Reid's show, and if you if for those of you who, I, I'm not a big Tucker Carlson guy. I don't really watch his show. Sometimes I do. Sometimes uh, he's good. Sometimes he's bad. There's a lot of stuff I don't agree with. Um, but the singular focus on someone like Tucker Carlson by people in our media and media critics when Joy Reid is allowed to just get away with some of the most insane, batshit, crazy shit that you have ever heard on cable news uh, is a large reason why I just, I write off their, I write off their criticisms of Tucker Carlson. So again, um, as Jeffrey noted, um, with people like Steve Hayes, who said, I can't abide the behavior of and the rhetoric of my, of my colleagues at Fox. Well, you've now created a standard for yourself, which is you've now tacitly endorsed everything at NBC and, and Jonah Goldberg has tacitly endorsed everything at CNN um, that is said on those networks that they don't quit over. And when you have a host going pro rape, 
I, I get the rest of us just roll our eyes at this lunatic, but this is a real question that eventually, in my opinion, the crew at the dispatch needs to answer. Why is January 6th insurrection rhetoric the, too far? That that's just too much. Okay, and I'm this is coming from a guy who wrote that Trump should have been impeached on the spot over it. So I'm not pro I'm not pro Trump here. But if that is the if that is the line, that is too much, then I guess we're leaving up everything that the Republicans are pro rape. And 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 I don't necessarily care Stephen Hayes opinion, but this is the the standard they set. Um, And as Jeffrey noted, you had a kind of a whole career of these people like Charlie Sykes, who just spent his career as a low rent Rush Limbaugh. And everything Jeffrey said is true about pumping up Sheriff Clark, who is who he now calls a white supremacist and part of the Proud Boys. Well, who put him on the map, Charlie? He he had an interview and he has an old tweet about it where he wanted Sheriff Clark to write a new jingle for his radio show. And Charlie somehow does not fancy himself part of the old guard entertainment wing of the GOP, which is how we all ended up at Trump. Um, go ahead, Jeffrey. I'll let you I'll let you finish up if you have another question or any f- closing thoughts. Yeah, just a few closing thoughts. For one, you know, the uh, first issue of the Weekly Standard, you know, it was on the cover. It was a uh, picture of Newt Gingrich dressed as John McClain, and the headline was all about how he's always fighting. And it included articles from such people as David Frum, David Brooks, and a lot of other people. Exactly who do you expect to be on the cover? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting something about, I mean, and you have from and David Brooks and these are all the same people kind of at the Atlantic. And, and if you weren't tuning into my podcast, I basically have stuck the label conference room conservatives on these people. And what I mean by that is the people like from and Brooks and whatever they had their, they had their time in the sun and it was 20 years ago and it's just a different place. Now, uh, media is different. Parties are different. Candidates are different. Um, some of them good, some of them not so good. I mainly, I'm not a fan of any politician. Um, and what I mean by conference room conservatives is you get an entire room of people and I made, and somebody had a great question kind of comparing this panel to what Twitter actually is, where you have, we're the blue checks up on the stage. You're going to listen to us. And then you had the students in the audience who brought up really good points. And those are not the blue checks. These are just the bot, you know, the app responding saying, Hey, you know, how come you guys botched the steel dossier, Nicholas Sandman, Jesse Smollett and and all of this stuff. And instead of addressing the concerns, they just block them or they say time for lunch and they check out. And that's very much what that room was. What I mean large on the larger point of conference room conservatives is people sitting on panels in Washington, D.C., or I guess in this case, Chicago or wherever, talking to themselves. They're not interested in the audience's opinion. They're not talking to the audience. They're talking to hear themselves and each other speak. Um, I know that the cliche of cocktail, the Georgetown cocktail circuit gets thrown out there. Laurie Ingram is big on that one. Um, but in a sense that that's true, I, I've been invited to some of these parties and I'm like, ew, no, um, a, a fun, a fun background story is, uh, Molly John fast invited me to some, I forget the book party. This is in New York city. And she's like, Oh, you have to come. There's Stelter's going to be a, people are going to be there. Media people are going to be there. And I was just like, I can't think of a worst fucking room I would rather be in at any given time. And a lot of that is they try to get you under their wing to stop criticizing them. That's mostly what that's about. And I've had it done to me by several reporters, whatever. Um, 
So you have kind of conference room conservatives who they love hearing each other talk, whatever, and they're not interested in anyone listening. You're supposed to sit there and listen. You listen to us and our great pontifications and our and our uh, our musings on the current political discourse and how much we hate it or don't like it. And, and by the way, this water bottle's keeping the polar bears at bay or, or something. And when you do that, and I made this point earlier, you're not you're not winning anyone over. You're just making yourselves feel better. Uh, the principles first is a perfect example or whatever, where you get a bunch of people in a room who are just self-affirming that they're the good guys. Um, they're right on some issues, but you're also all assholes, Walter. Um, and that when you do that, when you confine yourselves to a room and just talk about how great you are to each other, you have an entire voting base out there, an entire young voting base. And we saw this at the University of Chicago, um, who you lose and and they're going to go somewhere else. And if they go to Ben Shapiro, don't complain that they went to Ben Shapiro. And if they go to Charlie Sykes or I'm sorry, Charlie Kirk, (laughs) uh, don't complain that they go to Charlie Kirk. And if they go to Tucker Carlson, don't complain that they went to Tucker Carlson. They went there because you gave up on them. And Jonah Goldberg's flippant wiping away of this kid is a perfect textbook example of what I'm talking about. He just he just waves this kid away and says, oh, that's preposterous. And that worked for a while. That worked in the 90s. It doesn't work anymore. Kids today are more in tune with media. They, they have it in their face constantly. So you give up on them. They're going to go somewhere else. And that's kind of... Um, you know, like I said, my thoughts on that. Yeah, the uh, dispatch conservatives are basically the Washington generals, you know? <laughs> except that they think that other people don't know that the whole thing is a setup. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm, and again, as I've said, I'm uh, I'm friendly with David French. Um, I learned a lot from him at National Review. Um, I know he's extremely unpopular, and I, I just I'm not into kind of the evangelical angle of the right, so I don't even really read that work anymore. Um, I noted today on the podcast for all kind of the complaining that we do about media, and we point out media bias and agenda bias, and and how it affects politics on the right and the left. Um, there are infinitely more people passionate about conservatives who made their bread and butter for 20 years, uh, again, steering the ship right toward Donald Trump and then jumping off and going, no, nope, we didn't, we didn't do this. See you later. Um, I get more passion from listeners, people like you, people in this podcast, people who are listening, um, than anybody on the left or even at CNN and, and until they rectify that. Um, it's just, it's never going to get better. I, I, I don't have anything personal to say about these guys. I don't, I don't know them personally, um, or anything like that, but there is, there is kind of this growing thing and they don't seem to be interested in, if you're really trying to pull the same middle back. Okay. If you're really trying to say, guys, we need, we need to bring the middle back. We need to get away from crazy Margo, you know, Mar-a-Lago land and all, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all of that. You don't go to the conference of disinformation in the Atlantic and sit with Barack Obama to do that. And that's kind of my closing thought on that. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Uh, Andrew, is Andrew back? And then we'll go Andrew and we'll finish up with uh, Jason. Jason, I hope you've taken your notes because you're going to get the very last question in on this. Andrew, welcome back. Uh, Don't worry, Stephen. This will be quick. Uh, just want to remind you that it couldn't have been Nancy Pelosi that got um, got our, our friend sick. Because remember, you have to invite her in before she can come in your house. <laughs> See? 
Also, is, is, I, I did hear like garlic is good for boosting immune systems. It's, it is a very good herb to have. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was just concerned. I was just concerned. Like he said, he definitely didn't get it from her. And I'm like, she, she can turn into mist, you know. So to say you definitely didn't get it is, is, you know, a stretch. That might be disinformation. Um, well, we also should have asked if you had a cross on the wall because that could have helped. You never know. Uh, I know you're not religious, so that may – hey, maybe that's why you got sick. Not from the hockey room, but just because right. you you're not very religious, so you don't have a cross. Oh, oh no. I definitely got it from hockey because it took out five of us. And we, we know which guy did it, and he just said he thought he was hungover because he didn't look good that night. And well, we maybe like, he All right. got it from her. He could have possibly, yes, transmitted it through them. Um, who knows? Andrew, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Jason, bring us home. What is the question on disinformation that you would ask the Atlantic panel on the erosion of democracy, including uh, featuring CNN, the Atlantic, and some of the dispatch guys, and, of course, former President Barack Obama? Bring us home, Jason. Don't let me down. All right, there we go. Uh, if Brian Stelter was still available, I'd ask if uh, CNN has any plans to go back in time to 2016 and squash the Anthony Weiner laptop story, too. If that's possible. <laughs> um, an, in- an interesting thing about this is this is this was the origins of what happened in 2020. They looked at. So basically what happened, we all know what happened in 2016, which is uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop was confiscated in a, uh, in a sexting, I guess, in a groomer investigation. Let's not go there. And uh, <laughs> James Comey found transferred emails from Huma Abedin's personal computer and Hillary Clinton's email on his laptop. So Comey had basically closed the Clinton investigation. We've cleared you. It's, it's OK, Grandma. Uh, also, one of the worst known, one of the worst kept secrets in all of Washington D.C. is Hillary Clinton would have also fired James Comey. Hundred percent would have happened. Um, is so that laptop story happens. Whatever he opens up the case, he says we're reopening this investigation two weeks before the election. Bang! They think that this is what caused Trump to win. This is a, this is a popular thing in media. This is something that's spread around at New York Times and uh, Ezra Klein is a huge proponent of this. That. You, you focus too much on the emails and things that didn't matter as opposed to, you know, the stuff that really did matter, like Trump's a psychopath or whatever, whatever you might have it. And so they basically said, yes, that's we agree with that. And they shamed their colleagues for focusing on Anthony Weiner and Hillary Clinton and all of this stuff. But that's not why Hillary lost. Hillary lost because she ignored the state of Wisconsin for 104 days. And that I'm being both literal and, you know, kind of conceptual there in the sense of she just did not campaign in the places that she needed to. She thought she had Wisconsin won. She thought she had the Rust Belt. She thought she had Pennsylvania. She thought she had Ohio. And it turns out, oops, you didn't. You'd rather spend time at Gwyneth Paltrow's house in in Hamilton. So fast forward to 2020. A lot of the reason the Hunter Biden's that that laptop story did get quashed the way it did, as well as several other stories with Joe Biden that were questionable, including questionable things he said in the past, you know, which is everything um, and policies he's had and stuff like that is no single reporter wanted to be the one responsible for the reporting that got Donald Trump elected for another four years. It really is that simple. If they let's say somebody at the New York Times picks up that New York Post story and says, we sh- this is worth looking into. 
And let's say that that's on the front page for two and a half weeks, okay? That person would be ostracized in their community. They'd be treated like a leper by every single person in that corridor of New York and DC as a journalist. No more book parties, no more happy hours. I don't even want to look at you in the office, okay? You're a pariah in media. If you're the one who reports the story that somehow leads to four more years of Donald Trump. The thing I've always said in that, that this is what journalists now believe their job is. If you look at someone like Jay Rosen on Twitter, who's a, a, a swear to God, he's an unhinged leftist, but he's a journalism professor at NYU who basically is completely one-sided and, and doesn't believe he's one-sided. Um, this is what they believe is that, no, 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 this, this is not news. These stories are not news. What's really news is, you know, uh, the, the GOP in January 6th. And yeah, I agree. January 6th is a newsworthy event. I can't imagine there are too many fucking people in this country right now who give a shit about January 6th when gas is $4 and you're telling us to go out and buy a $50,000 Tesla. I just, I don't believe that. If everything was going swimmingly for Joe Biden and Afghanistan wasn't a wreck and the foreign policy isn't a wreck and COVID looks like it's coming back, yeah, I think more people would be interested in January 6th. I don't see people interested in that. So th the larger point of what I'm saying is, is this is what they believe their job is. And this is why this was so this was why the Hunter laptop story getting quashed when it did was so bad, because they're going to do it again, probably maybe in midterms. Um, but certainly in 2024, they will do it again. And I've got news for those people. That's not your fucking job. Your job is to report a story wherever it goes when it lands in your lap. And you know what? If Rudy Giuliani and Stephen Bannon um, are pushing this laptop story to you and you just go, I'm not going to fucking touch this because of who you are. I think it's incumbent upon you as a journalist to go, okay, I, I want to interview Rudy Giuliani. Who, do, who wouldn't want that interview? The guy's fucking crazy now. So let's interview him. And you get that, and then you look at the laptop story, you investigate it, and you know what? If for some reason that there's photos of Hunter Biden peeing in dad's mouth on that laptop, and they're all sharing a joint and, and a cocktail waitress, then you know what? And if that costs the election, pick better candidates. That's it. That's all I, that's all I can say. We make those decisions. This is, this is why, in principle, I was completely opposed to what was going on with the FBI and the Trump campaign with Carter Page and the FISA warrants. Um, they believe that they were doing a good service for to uphold the country and uphold democracy because they believe Trump was a threat to the country, a threat to democracy, and whatever. And it's not your fucking job. If Donald Trump comes into the Oval Office, and he might be back in three, two to three years, if he walks in there and he the first day he sits down, he swivels around in the chair... He puts his hand over his eyes and he pushes a button on the desk and randomly nukes a European country. And it's the end of our country as we know it. We chose that. The FBI doesn't get to choose that. We did. And that's how it works. And then future generations will be huddled around barrel fires and they can learn from our mistakes. And so, but if you understand the 2016 news cycle, you understand why they did what they did in 2020. It's an excellent point that Jason brings up because it's not examined enough that they all, the media blames itself for what happened with Trump, except they blame themselves in the wrong way. They think that they just focused too much on Hillary Clinton's emails, which didn't matter because it was all gullet fish and, and remote controls and grandma doesn't know how to work a lamp. <laughs> and that is not. They are responsible for Donald Trump to the tune of giving him $5 billion in free media. We all remember it. He was on covers of Rolling Stone. He was on every magazine cover. He was all in media. 
And those of us said they're doing this on purpose. They want Trump to get the nomination. He's it was all fun and games when Trump is beating the shit out of kind of the GOP golden boys and Rand Paul and Marco Rubio and Lion Ted and all of this stuff. So then he gets the nomination and boy, they turned on him immediately. Suddenly Saturday Night Live went from hosting him to calling his supporters Nazis just in two weeks, just a flat spin like that. So they are to blame for Donald Trump. And that's largely of, you know, why I'm a thorn in so many of these people's sides. And this is why largely I'm a thorn in even sides of people on the right, is you don't get to embrace Morning Joe and the network of NBC who gave Trump a tenure contract on The Apprentice while then pointing at why Twitter users are somehow more to blame than you. You don't get to sign a contributor contract with Jeff Zucker's CNN. And I know Jeff Zucker's not there anymore. But the atmosphere is still there. That's not something that's gone away. You don't get to sign a contract with Jeff Zucker, CNN. Jeff Zucker, who is the single most responsible for Donald Trump as president of the United States of anyone on this planet and resurrecting him off the cultural ash heap. And then look somehow again, point at social media and Twitter and say that disinformation is the problem. It's, a, it's an excellent point, Jason, to bring up the 2016 election. And, you know, if we could go back, would we do it differently? Of course they would. They would, they would suppress that story as well. And that's, we saw the direct result of that. And, and like I said, it's, it's not so much that they suppress that story. They suppressed a true story. It's that they're going to do it again. So Jason, I'll give you a last final thought. I know I rambled a little bit there, so go ahead and wrap this up and uh, we'll call it a night. Uh, I don't have anything on topic, so I'll just let you get on to whatever you do. On <laughs> uh, I, I undress, I get completely naked, and I put peanut butter on my lipples, and then I lay on the floor and let my French bulldogs lick it off. It's just this thing we got into. So, And, of course, they're staring at me, and they're really wanting their peanut butter right now. Um, so that's good. Thanks, everybody. Um, some really great questions, some really great points that kind of you know springboarded me and allowed me to kind of elaborate on this hilarious joke and ruse that was this Atlantic conference. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how much more we can say on it uh, and, and for the people involved other than uh, these were all excellent points, Anthony Weiner, Michael Avenatti, um, all of these things are, are relevant and fed into this atmosphere that they somehow blame people on Twitter for now. Um, so again, uh, another great episode. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I appreciate it. Uh, I'll probably be back next week. We may do another Friday happy hour, whatever. Um, so, but keep, uh, so make sure you subscribe to this channel here and you can also get me on Twitter. I promote this on my Twitter as well as my podcast on Patreon, which you can join for just three bucks a month. Um, it's, it's cheap. It's half the price of your daily Starbucks. I, I'm really, I'm a cheap date. I promise. Um, just three bucks a month and a can of peanut butter and we're set. Uh, thanks everyone. I'm Stephen Almelo. This is versus media live on call in. And again, we'll see you next week.